Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm John Hare, and you've found the place where we talk horses. This morning, I have on the phone a legal expert, an attorney in fact, Joanna Sheehy, and we're going to talk about equine legal issues and how you can protect yourself and your horse in this crazy world we live in today. Good morning, Joanna. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Where are you located, Joanna? I am in sunny Miami, Florida. Oh, great. I'm in sunny California. In April here, it's it's going to be a beautiful day. How's it in Miami? You know, I have to say, we are having a beautiful day as well. It The, the humidity <laughs> has not yet set in. I, any day now, I think we're going to be um, inundated with that tropical humidity. But today, it's, it's a lovely morning, I'll say. Before I get into the legal talk, tell me a little bit about your background with horses, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, I've been around horses really all of my life. I I guess I started taking riding lessons when I was about five or six years old. Um, My my father's best friend, and and actually my sister's godfather, he and his wife have a large Arabian farm down in Miami. They've since relocated to Ocala, but I grew up kind of going to the farm and being around the horses, and that led to riding lessons, which led to showing, which led to a lifetime passion of mine for for horses. My riding experience is in the English discipline, and Mm -hmm. my experience primarily is with Arabians and half Arabians, national show horses. I will tell you that I, I'm learning to jump, <laughs> so I'm kind of getting exposure to the hunter-jumper world, which has been a really fun thing. It's, it's not neat to uh, learn new skills and be exposed to different disciplines, and, and, and that's one of the things I've really enjoyed about my equine law practice is that I have the opportunity to learn about all these different disciplines in the equine world. For example, you know, I have a, a client who breeds and sells Andalusians. And I've learned so much about the Andalusian breed and the uh, import process and, you know, the, the process they go through for what they call revision for stallions to, to make sure that they're of a certain quality and so on and so forth. And, and it's been, it's really fun. One of the things I love about being a lawyer is that you're constantly learning. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's a lifelong thing. And that's kind of why I wanted to talk to you this morning. In the, in the horse world, the prices of horses have just gone up, and particularly in the the Western. I think in the English and and dressage areas, they've always been kind of up there. But it's more important now than ever, I think, to protect yourself. And what kind of problems do you see in your law practice dealing with horses? Like anything, the the problems can range. I deal with breach of contract issues, questions of premises liability, uh, unpaid rent or or board, things of that nature. But, you know, I think one of the, the biggest things that I see has to do with handshake agreements. I think it's very common in the equine industry for horse sales, breeding agreements, sometimes even leases or training agreements just to be done with a handshake, an oral agreement, which I I think is very customary. And Mm -hmm. nine times out of 10, there's no issue. The problem, though, comes, of course, when there is a problem. One person's expectation is not in line with the other's expectation. Memories fade, memories change, circumstance changes. 
And there's nothing in writing to memorialize what that agreement was and to articulate each side's rights. And so when a, a problem or conflict does arise, when there's nothing in writing, it leads to trouble down the road. All right. So someone might enter a, a training agreement and they think the trainer's going to do a certain thing. Months go by and maybe the horse doesn't respond as well as the trainer expected and the or the owner and then they go back and they said well you were going to do this or uh, i thought you were going to do that how come you're not training my horse or things like that how do you structure that in a contract i mean do you can you just write up a piece of paper or do you actually have to involve a lawyer how what would you recommend a horse owner do who's trying to engage a trainer? Sure. So I I think that the answer to the short answer to your question is that no, a lawyer does not always have to be involved. Of course, I do recommend that when you're drawing up contracts, particularly if you're going to have kind of a form contract that you're going to use with a number of customers that you have a lawyer review it um, just to ensure that it complies with all of your local laws, local statutes and things of that nature. But at the end of the day, lawyers can be costly. And so sometimes that's not something that is necessarily feasible. Um, There are actually a lot of resources online. There are um, the National Agricultural Law Center actually has a compilation of state laws regarding the equine industry that you can consult. And there's a lot of form documents online. Now, I don't necessarily recommend that you just pick a a form off the internet and use it, but (laughs) they, they, they certainly can provide some ideas in terms of the things that you might need to articulate. I think in terms of like a boarding agreement and a boarding boarding and training contract, one it's very important that you are articulating specifically the services that are going to be provided. If it's a full board and training, what does that mean? If it's half board, what does that mean? What right. are the expectations? What will happen in the event of liability? What are the terms of termination? Is there a notice requirement? You know, things of that nature, You, it's always a good idea to kind of think about the relationship as a whole and how you foresee it playing out down the line. So, you know, one of the things as lawyers we try to do is we try to, you know, look around the bends of the curve to see, okay, where might a problem arise? But, you know, in broad strokes, I think it's very important that there's clarity in terms of what's going to be charged, when it's going to be charged, what service is going to be provided, are there any guarantees, are there any limitations, just just to make sure everyone's on the same page. Right. And so then that way you have fewer disputes. I think if you're a trainer and you have some sort of contract-like agreement where you've delineated the services you're going to provide, I, I do think you come off more professional if you do do that instead of just the handshake. But mm-hmm. for hundreds of years in the horse industry, especially in the West, everything, like you said, was done on a handshake. I think we might have been in a little bit different culture back then, too, so I'm <laughs> not sure if that applies. And then when you were talking about the boarding stable scenario, it almost sounded like you were talking about if you were the stable, how to protect yourself. Are there things that the border can do to make sure that everything's okay for their horse that's going to be staying there? Sure. You know, I think it's just as important for the border to review these contracts and to have input as the stable. Uh, I think if you're a border, one of the, again, 
you want to make sure that you understand what you're going to be charged and what that monthly, if it's a monthly board, is going to get you, exactly what the expectations are in terms of feeding schedule, stall cleaning, turnout, so on and so forth to provide for the care for your horse. Another very important thing to ensure if you're a boarder, is that there is set forth in the contract or if you don't have a contract, at least between you and um, the boarding facility, is what to do in emergency. As much as we want to be available, and I think so many of us are, you know, have our phones with us all the time, sometimes you're not available. And as we all know, emergencies can crop up in the blink of an eye. And sometimes really important decisions need to be made very quickly. And so, you know, you need to make sure that your the stable boarding your horse has your contact information, knows what to do in an emergency. If they and and who is delegated authority to make these decisions if they can't get in touch with you, if if your horse needs to have emergency colic surgery and you're not available, who makes that decision as to whether you're going to proceed or not? And that actually kind of leads to another important piece: is is your horse insured? Some right. you know. It do you and, and what is that insurance and who is your carrier? Because another thing that we see a lot is notice requirements by carriers. You know they want to be involved and the con the insurance contracts require them to receive notice if if, if these big decisions are going to be made, whether a horse is going to be put down, whether they're going to have colic surgery, right. and of course you know, the insurance company might want to speak to the veterinarian and be involved in that process so that they're, so that the policy remains in force. And so you want to ensure that your stable, that the stable owner or whoever's caring for your horse has that information as well. So that if you, in the event that you're not able to be reached, that stable owner can, can contact your preferred vet, can contact whoever the decision maker is and can contact the insurance company to make sure that, your horse is being taken care of and your rights are being protected. Right. And I'm not sure how this question is going to come out, but when you're looking at a contract and you're, you're getting ready to board your horse, we're fortunate we get to keep our horses on our own property. But oh. if you're going to board your horse someplace and you're, they lay this contract out in front of you, it's very easy for a consumer to look at all that fine print and go, this is just a basic contract and sign it. And mm-hmm. I can imagine that's probably not the best thing to do. But a lot of that language in there, we just don't understand. Can you actually go to the boarding stable and say, hey, this, I, I can't understand this. And how important is that? Absolutely. And, and I think that's a really important point and something that I actually in all of the contracts that I work on, and I think it's very important to stay away from what we like to call legalese, right? It's really important that the contracts are understandable and that the person who's signing has a very clear understanding as to what they're signing on for. And if something isn't clear, then I think it is absolutely appropriate to have that conversation to say, I don't know what this means. Can you explain it? Can we change the language? Can we put it in in a way that is more clear? Because when you sign that contract, generally speaking, there's going to be a lot of times there's there's language above the signature line or somewhere in there that basically says, by signing this, I acknowledge that I've read it and I understand it. And so you're, it is going to be a binding document. So you want to make sure that you have a very clear understanding of what it is that you're signing on for. Right. But to that point, 
one of the things that I try to do in my contracts is to make them very user friendly because not everyone is a lawyer and in order for these contracts to be enforceable, they have to be understandable. It's if in the event of a dispute, kind of take this indecipherable contract to the court and say, look, your honor, this, they signed this. Well, <laughs> you know, well, it makes it, you know, not to say that the contract would not still be in, still be enforceable, but there are defenses that could be raised to say, yes, we had a conversation about what this meant and my, my client was duped. They didn't understand this. Right. So I think it is, it's very important that all parties have a clear understanding about what is in the contract and what, which each person's rights are, what their obligations are as well. And, and, and one thing that's a lot of times I would advise to be included in a boarding contract is limitations of liability for the stable. And I think it's very important that it is, again, clearly articulated because there's actually 48 of the 50 states have what are called equine activity liability acts. And what those acts do are their statutes. And what they are is their statutes that are going to limit the liability for a provider of equine activities. So in, in other words, if someone is injured participating in equine activity, it's going to limit the liability of that stable owner or that ho- horse owner. Uh, mm-hmm. The purpose of them is to shift the responsibility to the participants. And generally, these statutes are limited to activities that are inherent to the equine activity. But right. again, it is important, I think, for a border or a participant to understand what the law says about liability and what they're getting into, you know, because equine activities, the law has found are inherently dangerous. I mean, you you know, you're riding an animal, you can fall off, you can be bit, you could be kicked. And of course, these aren't things that we, we expect to happen and don't happen that frequently. But the law has taken a position on them and said, you basically, has tried to shift the responsibility to that participant. And so particularly if we're dealing with someone who's not familiar with the equine industry, you know, there's a lot of academy programs and, and, and lesson programs where you're trying to introduce the public to this wonderful world of horses. And right. there's not a generalized knowledge about horses and what the risks are. And so that's another very important thing for both sides to have an understanding about what we're getting ourselves into. What are these potential risks? You know, Someone who's never been around horses might not know they could get bit. They might not know they could get kicked. They might really not understand that a horse can spook from something, right? Right. So it's important to have these things set out so that everyone's expectations, everyone knows what their expectations are. That's fascinating. I didn't realize that there were liability limits in the equine world like that. But yes. it is it is a very dangerous thing. And, and a lot of times the rider is part of the problem so you you know and if they for for like a medical injury and then they want to be covered fully that that might be an unreasonable ask then because they were part of the may have been part of the cause for the injury absolutely now you know it's always very unfortunate if someone falls and is injured but in terms of imposing liability on either the stable or or the owner of the horse uh you know you're going to have to look at every, every circumstance with its own, you know, every, every, every accident as it happens. Right. But there, there are statutes that come into play. That's when you're going to be looking at those liability releases and the circumstances, you know, the statutes are very broad 
And there are exceptions, of course, to every rule. The statutes don't provide uh, exemptions from liability. For example, if there's gross negligence, you know, a reckless regard, disregard for right. someone's well-being. If there's an intentional act, of course, you know, and I have to say, I've never come across something, you know, an intentional act. But, you know, there it is. Faulty equipment is another area where there, there might not necessarily be that exemption. If, for example, the stable provider uses a, a shoddy girth or something along those lines, mm-hmm. you know, the equipment is faulty, then they might be on the hook for liability. So, you know, it, it's always a good idea for, for all sides to, to, to kind of enter into a relationship with, an, with a clear idea of what the risks are, what the responsibilities are, and what the obligations are. Can you tell us a, a story about maybe one of your more fascinating cases that you had to deal with and maybe negotiate for a client? Oh, gosh. Let's see. One example is actually recently, and this actually goes to our handshake agreement. I, I don't know if this is fascinating per se, but it is a good example of why these contracts could be so important. Um, right. We represented a a stable owner who had a client and there were there, there were a number of sales transactions, a number of horses that were sold. There was a stallion sold for breeding purposes. And, and, the, and there were written contracts which accompanied some of them. However, there were also side agreements. There were also handshakes. There were also, well, we'll throw in extra <laughs> readings. We'll do this. We'll do that. And unfortunately, as, as you know, the individual who was, who had been making a lot of purchases ended up being unsatisfied with how the breeding program was going, how the horses were performing, and started, wanted to rescind some of these agreements. And so when you kind of started, when you start into it, you say, okay, well, we have these contracts, it looks great. But then you start getting into discovery and you realize, okay, well, certain representations were made. Oh, yes, well, we did say this about that, but I can't remember. Well, was there one breeding? Was there two breeding? You know, it, it turns right. it starts, it's, and that's where, you know, things start to snowball. And so that is actually a case that we went to mediation and we ended up resolving. Some of the horses were taken back, some of the horses. Uh, he, there were actually, there was actually an exchange of some horses. That that's one example of just how handshake agreements or handshake alterations to contrast can get you into hot water. Right. Again, it's not in paper. There's different ideas of what's going to happen, and if it's not written down, <laughs> I can see that happening very easily. You know, somebody's unsatisfied, and and even though it may not have been in the contract. Somebody go, well, listen, let me take care of it by doing this. And then that's not noted anywhere exactly. in, in writing. And then later down the road, and like you said, if it's a breeding, well, you know, that's a, a year later you find out kind of the results of that breeding or even longer and whose memory lasts that long. Exactly. I have another, uh, and then this isn't actually a, a case that I represented any of the individuals, but it's kind of a funny anecdote. So a lot of the equine liability statutes require either the boarding facility or the training facility to have signs posted, which would have statutorily prescribed language mm-hmm. indicating that there's limitations of liability. Also, an alternative, some states require it can be in, in a signed release. In any case, there was a boarding facility that did, in fact, have the sign up as required. 
Unfortunately, the goat that wandered around the property had ate the sign (laughs) (laughs) or munched the sign. And so when one of, unfortunately, there was an accident and there was litigation brought and the question arose, well, was there compliance with the statute? Was there a sign up? And the answer was, yes, of course. Well, let's see it. Well, the goat ate it. (laughs) (laughs) And so... As it turns out, there, in that case, they were they were aware that the goat ate the sign. Another sign had been brought on and was placed somewhere else. But yeah, you know, having a sign to comply with the statute is all well and good until the goat eats it and it's no longer legible, right? It didn't. So. It didn't work for with my homework and my dog in the sixth grade either. So. <laughs> exactly. You know, these are, these are the kind of things you can't make the stuff up, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. When you buy or sell a horse, is a bill of sale sufficient or do you need a contract for that too? So I typically do also draw up a contract and there are certain states that have laws that actually talk about what's required when there is a sale of a horse. In Florida, a bill of sale is required, but there are also there is statutory prescribed language that needs to be included in the bill of sale, particularly regarding representations and warranties that were made as to a horse. In other words, the statute is designed to ensure one makes a rep- if I'm a seller and I make a representation about the horse that leads someone to purchase the horse, that if the buyer is going to rely on it, that that's put in writing. And the purpose of that is to, to avoid unfair and deceptive trade practices. I typically do include, even if it's a short sales contract, you know, include the parties, make sure that the, uh, we have the horse down, right? <laughs> what is the right. horse and who is the horse that we're selling? What representations are being made? Who bears the risk of loss until the horse is with the new owner? If, you know, if this is a cross-country transaction. Oh, yeah. Was there a pre-purchase agreement? Was there a veterinary exam? Are there representations as to the health of the, of the horse? Things of that nature. But Bills of sale can be as simple as you like them to be. Um, it is, I would recommend, a good idea to have something in writing to memorialize that transaction. Right. A- another issue that comes up sometimes, and of course this is more with higher-end horses, but commissions. And if we're dealing with agents, who are the agents? Who are they representing? Is a portion mm-hmm. of the sales price going to an agent? And if so, what is that? Uh, I get the question asked a lot, well, how much does a horse cost? And I said, well, I mean, a horse is like a car. You know, you can get one for free or you can pay a million dollars. I mean, it's just like anything else, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I I do think that one of the important things to keep in mind, too, and this may happen on the lower end horses, but to make sure that the person you're buying the horse from has the right to sell that horse or is the owner of the horse because it might have been passed on. To, like you said, somebody got a free horse. They kept it for a while and said, oh, no, I want to sell it. The original owner who gave the horse away may say, well, you can't sell my horse. Absolutely. I'm so glad you you brought that up. In terms of representations, that is one that I include in every single one of my sales agreement that the seller is authorized to sell a horse, that they, they are the, the rightful owner. I actually had a, an incident come up a month ago where I had a, a horse owner who had basically 
let her horse, I, I don't want to say it was leased per se, but basically a, another person was using the horse, paying for it, enjoying, enjoying the horse. And mm-hmm. the owner wanted to take it back. But the lessor said, what are you talking about? This is my horse now. You gave it to me. And of course, there was nothing in writing. And, you know, we ended up being able to negotiate, negotiate it. The owner did get the horse back. But again, that's one of those circumstances where there was nothing in writing. It was just handshake agreements, verbal discussions. And to someone standing on the outside, they might say, okay, well, you say you're the owner, but you haven't been paying for the horse. You haven't been riding the horse. Like, you gave the horse to this person. <laughs> why, why, why should you be, why should I believe that you wanted to maintain any type of ownership interest? Things like that. A lot of times you do want to make sure that they're memorialized in some way. So just to protect everyone's rights. So there's a clear understanding. Yeah. We're going to take a little bit of a break for a brand new sponsor to the Woe Podcast. But before we do, I want to tease this question to you. As a recreational trail rider, are there any specific needs that we need to be aware of from in the legal standpoint when we're riding out on the trail and we may be on state property or we may be on public property? So keep that in mind and we'll answer that question right after this. We'd like to welcome a new sponsor to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship, Echo Gold Saddle Pads. Your saddle pad is the connection between you, your saddle, and your horse, and impacts the quality of your ride. Echo Gold Western Saddle Pads are 100% North American made with your horse's comfort in mind. Whether you're executing a high-impact maneuver or navigating tough terrain, Echo Gold's complete line of Western saddle pads can help solve saddle fit issues, reduce a horse's back discomfort, and allow free shoulder movement for peak performance. If you experience saddle slipping or ride a barrel-bodied horse, the Western Secure Pad offers a contoured shape and non-slip fabric that keeps the pad comfortably in place. If you ride a sensitive-backed horse, the Calmatec Western Saddle Pad gives maximum comfort with medical-grade fleece to prevent rubbing and impact. Both pads offer two vents on the spine, feature a layer of 3D airflow spacer to improve sweat evaporation, they're shimmable for a perfect fit, and the best part of all, they come in a wide array of color choices. Most importantly, they're machine washable, which prevents the spread of skin conditions and keeps your pad looking great ride after ride. Choose your perfect Echo Gold Western pad at select retailers and at echogold.ca. Echo Gold saddle pads, designed to put the comfort of your horse first. Okay, and we're back. And so Joanna, is there anything for the average trail rider that we need to do to protect ourselves when we're out on the trail? I think that you always want to make sure that you are complying with any local and state ordinance or governance, right? Mm-hmm. You want to be ensure that you are aware of signage in terms of trespassing, private property, uh, things that, of that nature. In terms of liability, again, if you're if you're just going onto a trail and they they don't have any type of form, for, there's no, there's usually no one standing there asking you to sign a release or anything along those lines, right? I would say the most important thing for you to be aware of is just making sure that you're staying on the trail, not veering off and not some onto someone else's property. I think another thing you want to ins- 
try to ensure is that, you know, when you come across others on the trail, you're cognizant of yourself, your space, their space, and your surroundings. You know, if there's other horses on the trail that might, you know, have a red ribbon or, you know, have a propensity, if you, if you're on a horse that has a propensity to kick or a propensity to bite, you want to make sure that uh, if you come across others on the trail, that you're just being cognizant, that you give any notice that's required to make sure that you're protecting your space and you're helping others make sure that they maintain a safe space as well. Right. And make sure that can't claim that gate was just happened to be open. So you went through it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Gates don't open themselves usually. (laughs) That's a good point. That probably the most dangerous thing about trail riding is the liability that because you're on somebody else's property. So any damage that you cause to that property or if you have an accident on their property you're you can't then claim they're liable because they provided that space for you to ride your horse i suppose that's true i think that there are potential exceptions if there's some type of a very dangerous condition that the property owner did know about but did not disclose it's some type of a, a, a latent condition there might be some type of a vehicle for recovery but generally speaking you know you're right if you're injured on that person's property just because through the nature of the equine activity, maybe, you know, there's a squirrel or, you know, an animal right. runs, there's a rust, your horse spooks, you fall off. That's generally not going to be something you're going to be able to recover from. And so, of course, for that reason, you want to make sure that you're taking care of yourself. You are making sure that your equipment is all in good order, using appropriate safety precautions, whether it be helmets or, or otherwise, to make sure that you're protecting yourself. We would uh, ride out in a farmer's property and he was very he was very pleasant about letting us ride through his property and there he kept about 30 hives of bees that we had to ride past to get into some open area where we enjoyed riding you know we we kept our mouth shut and our collars <laughs> buttoned as we rode by these bees but you know we couldn't then come back to him and say well what were these bees doing on this property because we were enjoying his land so. Exactly, exactly. You know, there, there is that tension there. But it, <laughs> that the bees, that would make me a little nervous. But I'm glad yeah. you, you, you emerged unscathed. <laughs> we did. So I think the whole concept about the law and, and horses is that you can do a lot to create peace of mind if you do a little planning ahead. I think so. Absolutely. A little planning, not only in the equine sense, but in in I think all of our aspects of our life, a little planning can go a long way. Right. And even though everyone may have good intentions, there's no harm in or even a reason to take offense if you write those intentions down and then have each party sign it. Certainly not. And I think that there sometimes is a hesitation to to put things in writing because, you know, you don't want to offend the other person. <laughs> you don't want to seem overbearing. But I think that at the end of the day, it really behooves both parties to have those things in writing. You know, I had dealt with a very sad incident and it involved a lease. And there was an individual who had leased their horse out to another. There was a year-long lease, and the person leasing the horse was able to show and so on and so forth. And mm-hmm. the lease didn't automatically renew, and, and at the the lease terminated. And then there was someone else who was going to maybe take over, and they'd started 
using the horse and hadn't signed any papers yet. And unfortunately, the horse, you know, it was a freak accident, you know, one of those things that happens. You know, it was just, it it was the the leg shattered. He had to be put down. It was just terrible. And, you know, everyone's grieving. And I hate to bring things back to money, but the original lease had a provision where the person who was leasing was going to maintain insurance on the horse for vet bills and mortality. Right. And there was nothing but that at least had expired, and the new folks hadn't signed anything yet, so there was no <sighs> coverage for the horse. And that was one of those, just one example of how best of intentions can make a, a really devastating right. event even even worse. Yeah. And so, you know, you do want to make sure that you memorialize things and you make sure that you have a clear understanding of what you're getting yourself into and what the expectations are, because unfortunately... When you haven't done that, at some point, there's very little. Sometimes lawyers can't help you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But you say, sometimes you have to say, I'm sorry, you you might be out of luck here. Yeah. If you own a horse and you're in the horse world, you know that there's not only a lot of work, but there there is a lot of money involved, too. So you want to make sure that you can protect yourself as many different ways as possible. Yeah, boy, I feel bad for that person who there was kind of just a a gap in coverage almost mm-hmm. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very sad, uh, sad scenario. But not to bring things down. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, this has really been fascinating, Joanne. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Is there anything else that you wanted to bring up? I think I've, I've spoken about really everything that I'd wanted to talk about just to kind of emphasize you know, while handshake agreements, I think, are, they're great, they're traditional, but they don't offer the protection that a written agreement does. So I would encourage all of your listeners, when engaging in transactions involving horses, to, to memorialize them in some way. It doesn't have to be very complicated. It can be very straightforward, it, layman terms. It doesn't have to be in legalese, but just you know, writing down each party's expectations, I think, is is really helpful. And I would also encourage your listeners, if you own a, a boarding facility or your trainer, to go ahead and check with your state's equine liability laws to ensure that you are complying with any obligations that it might impose, and that you're just aware of what the risks are as a person who's offering board or training. And similarly, if you're someone who has horses and you're boarding them somewhere, you want to know what your rights are as well. So it's always a good idea to have a, a sense of those laws. I think that's that's really good advice. And, I do, and even if you're making an arrangement between a friend, I think it's good just to put something down on a even if it's a napkin or a, a, a feed bag that you write down. But you write down just what your expectations are and what they can expect. And because like you said, I think most disagreements really can start from that handshake agreement. Well, I'm going to do this and you do that. And and then things can de- deteriorate. Absolutely. So if people would like to contact you or learn more about your law firm, where shall we send them? So Anyone who would like to learn more, I would encourage them to visit our website. It's shehiandassociates.com, and I'll spell that out because that is a mouthful. Okay. <laughs> it's S-H-E-E-H-E-A-N-D-A-S-S-O-C 
I-A-T-E-S.com. We also have a Facebook page and uh, or you can visit my LinkedIn profile as well. And again, my name is Joanna Sheehy. Awesome. And I'll put all those links and a couple of photos in the episode page at wopodcast.com. Well, this has been a lot more fun than I thought it was going to be, Joanna. i got to tell you that. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I think us lawyers get a bad rap sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, law and geometry are probably my two weaknesses. So, <laughs> But you made well, this very, very palatable. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. It was really a pleasure. I, I appreciate you letting me come on. Great. Thank you, Joanna. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That will do it for this episode. I must say that when I was approached to do an episode with a lawyer, I balked. Somehow, I equated it with reading the license agreement when you install software on your computer. But because I find their world so confusing, I wanted to learn more. And I'm glad I did. Joanna is very easy to talk to. And the information she provides can head off a world of problems you don't want to deal with. Thanks, Joanna, for sharing your knowledge. If you have questions for Joanna Sheehy, I'll have her web address, contact info, and other links in the description at wopodcast.com. Spring is upon us. I think COVID is behind us. Your horses are out there ready for you to enjoy. I hope you get after it. As always, if you'd like to share a story or experience about your horse or suggest a guest, let's hear it. Send an email to john at wopodcast.com or connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram under the name Whoa Podcast. I love hearing from you. Thanks again for listening and sharing the podcast with your friends and writing buddies. Until next time, for Renee, this is John Hare saying, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.